Over Thanksgiving, my family and I, we, we went and drove up to Washington, D.C., and just kind of took in the memorials and the monuments and the museums and all that stuff. We had a great time. The weather was beautiful. And as we're walking around the National Mall, you know, it's just impressive walking up to Washington Monument or walking up the steps of the Lincoln Memorial or the Jefferson Memorial. Uh, but one of the memorials that maybe you just might walk by, unless you have a personal connection to it, is the Vietnam Memorial. And, and we walked by that memorial, and one of the things that I learned about that memorial is it's, it's simply 144 panels of black granite. And on that granite is inscribed the names of the 58,318 soldiers who died at Vietnam. And of the names listed, over 17,000 of them were married. Uh, 12 of them died at the age of 17. Five of them died at the age of 16. 997 of them died on their first day of active duty. 1,448 of them died on what was supposed to be their last day in their tour of duty. And when you look at it, it's just the names. You know, there's no long eulogies or anything like that. It's just the names. And one of the things that I also learned is as you're, as you're looking at the names, the monument has been prepared and polished in such a way that when you're reading the names on the wall, you can actually see your reflection in the wall. And this was done on purpose to symbolically tie together the past and the present. So that when you're looking at the names, you're remembering of the price that was paid that we can enjoy the freedoms and the liberties that we enjoy today in the present. You know, this morning, we're beginning our Christmas series titled For All People. And you know, when you think about the Christmas story and kind of jumping into the Christmas story, you think about it in the Gospel of Matthew and in the Gospel of Luke, and the temptation is to run ahead to the good stuff, you know, when Mary and Joseph are there in the in the in the, ma- the manger scene, the nativity scene, and Jesus is being born, and then the shepherds are coming, and then some years later, the wise men come. And, and this, this, these are the scenes that we think of of Christmas. This is what we want to run to. But you know, the way that Matthew has prepared his gospel by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is that he's prepared this wall of names. And when you look at this wall of names to begin the genealogy of Matthew, one of the things you see is they've been prepared and polished in such a way that if you'll stare long enough, you'll, you'll see your reflection in those names. And you'll see how those names were significant in the past. They're significant to our present because they secure our future. I want you to see it because it all leads to one name. Let's check it out. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Matthew writes, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed, by Ruth, 
and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheotil, Sheotil the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, and Abihud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Elihud, and Elihud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Matthew sets the tone in the very first verse of his gospel, and he's telling us that Jesus is the son of David. Okay, he's pointing us to the lineage. And when he says the son of David, any Israelite, any Jew, what they're recognizing is, okay, Matthew is going to be pointing to the Messiah because it is from the line of David that the Messiah would come. Okay, there's been the promise that's been made that there will come a king, a Messiah, whose kingdom will be everlasting. And so Matthew is hinting at this just in his opening line. But he's not simply the father of David, or the son of David. He's also the son of Abraham. And the promise was given to Abraham that through his seed, all nations of the earth would be blessed. And so as Matthew is beginning his gospel, you get the hint right at the beginning that Jesus is the one who is the king, an everlasting king, a king who's, who will reign eternally and who will bring peace to all people, all people will be blessed if they are in right relationship with this king. And so Matthew, even in the opening line, he's hinting at this. And as you read it, you see that Matthew, he's broken it down nice and neatly for us. 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to the Babylonian exile, 14 generations from the Babylonian exile to Jesus. Now, is it exactly 14 generations? No. Matthew's going to be skipping some names. The idea here, I think, is what he's doing is in a very oral culture, when most people are not going to have copies of the Bible, he's trying to make it memorable. So he's giving you these names. He's strategic in the names he's giving us. It's not every last name in the genealogy of Jesus. It's here's 14, here's 14, here's 14. And as you're building up to Jesus, the Messiah, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. I mean, you're expecting, okay, that you're going to get a who's who in Israelite genealogy, okay? You're going to get all the heroes. You're going to get all the kings. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be wonderful. It's going to be great as you're building up to Jesus. And, it, and as you begin reading, it starts off strong enough because here he is, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. All these men had faults to be sure. They had sin issues. You can go, you can read about it. But when you think of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 
What do you think of? You think of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You think of the promise given to Abraham. You you think of the the lengths that God has gone to to secure his promise to align to begin. And so this is what you think of. It starts off strong. And it continues that way. I mean, the next name is Judah. Now, Judah had a whole bunch of issues going on in his life. But when you think of Judah, what you think of the line of Judah. It's kind of curious that the line would go through Judah. Jacob had 12, 13 sons. It, It didn't go through the oldest. The oldest was Reuben. It didn't go through the most faithful. The most faithful was Joseph. Uh, God, in his providence, chose to go through the line of Judah. Judah was actually one who hatched the plan to sell Joseph off to the slave traders. But anyhow, regardless of that, when you hear the name Judah, you think of the line of Judah. It's still a strong start. This is a compelling genealogy. All right, we're building up to Jesus. And then all of a sudden, it takes a curious turn. Because after Judah, you get Perez and Zerah. Not just Perez, okay? These were twins. And you expect, okay, that God and his wisdom, he's just going to give us the line. But he doesn't just give us the line. He includes Zerah. It's curious. And then things take a really uncomfortable turn because then he says, by Tamar. Now listen. That's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for a couple of reasons. One, in those days, okay, first century, uh, you didn't need to include a woman in the genealogy in order for it to be legal, okay? In those days, women were not even allowed to testify in a court of law, okay? Their testimony was worthless. It meant nothing. And so you don't even need to include the name of a woman in the genealogy. But if you're going to include the name of a woman in the genealogy, you're certainly not going to include Tamar, I mean, of all people, of all the women in Jesus' past, Tamar, I mean, everybody, all the Israelites, when they hear that, what's Matthew doing? I mean, why is he saying Tamar? I mean, her history is ugly, all right? It's it's uncomfortable to even talk about, but I will. Uh, Tamar, she, here's what she did, okay? She was a childless widow. She was desperate for a son, an heir, most likely to be able to protect her, look after her in her old age. She was a Gentile. She was a Canaanite. So she has all this against her as well. In her desperation, what does she do? She dresses up like a temple prostitute. She bats her eyes to her father-in-law, Judah. Nine months later, Perez and Zerah. That's Tamar. And you're hearing that. It doesn't just like put Tamar in a bad light. It also just stains Judah, who you just read about. You think, oh man, the lion of Judah doesn't sound so much like a lion anymore. You know, I mean, what's going on here? Why do you have to include Tamar? And then Matthew keeps writing. And you get to verse five and you see Boaz and his mother was Rahab, another woman another Gentile woman, another Canaanite Gentile woman. The thing about Rahab, she wasn't a pretend prostitute. She actually was one. All right? It's uncomfortable. And you're looking, you say, why? Why are you going out of your way to include these names in the genealogy of Jesus? And then right after this, who do you get? Ruth. Ruth, another woman, another Gentile woman. She's not a Canaanite, though. She's a Moabitess. And the history of the Moabites, 
Well, that's a really ugly history. That's a really sordid past, okay? To, to back up, to give you where the line of the Moabites came from, you go back to Lot, okay? Lot and his family, they're, they're running away. They're fleeing. Don't look back. Saul, uh, Lot's wife looks back. She turns into a pillar of salt. Lot has two daughters. Uh, they're fleeing Sodom and Gomorrah. The two daughters, they basically have the same character as Sodom and Gomorrah. The oldest daughter has relations with her father, names the son Moab. That's the history of the Moabites. That's where the Moabites came from. And here, right in the family tree of Jesus, right in the genealogy of Jesus, you're bringing it in. It almost seems unnecessarily so. You only got to talk about the guys. Why are you even bringing her into the picture? Well, Matthew keeps writing, and you come to David, the greatest king in Israel's history. I mean, if you talk about the brightest of the bright spots and the lineage of Jesus, it's David, right? Okay, I can almost forget about the inclusion of all these uncomfortable scenes because now you get the name of David, this great king of Israel. But what does Matthew do? Is that David is the father of Solomon. He could have left it there. But he adds this little editorial comment by the wife of Uriah. Doesn't even say the name Bathsheba. He could have maybe said like by Uriah's widow, you know, kind of clean it up, you know, dress it up a little bit. But he doesn't do any of that. It's almost as if Matthew is is pointing us to the most uncomfortable, the ugliest moment of David's life the most objectionable, horrible moment of David's life and just thrusting in our faces and making us look at this and remember the adultery and remember the cover-up and remember the murder and everything that went along. And so you're reading this and you're looking at this and you're almost asking the question, what are you doing? Because let's face it, if it's any of us and we're writing our genealogy and we're going through our family tree, uh, we want it to look good, you know? I mean, we're not just going to like, let's just put in like all the worst details of our family so that when everybody reads it, they can kind of see and just be remembered of this. No, no, we wouldn't do it. We, we'd dress it up in such a way. We'd word it carefully. We wouldn't want to highlight the ugliness of it all. And then if you're preparing the genealogy, the family tree of Jesus, the Messiah, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, you're definitely going to make sure that that one looks nice. It seems like Matthew's going out of his way to point out those uncomfortable moments, those moments that you want buried so deep that they'll never be dug up, that you can just forget about because they're uncomfortable and they're painful and they're hurtful and they're ugly. And so the question comes, God, what are you doing? Why a genealogy like this? Well, if you look down at verse 21, I think you get an idea of what's happening. The angel tells Joseph that Mary's going to give birth to a son and that you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. What is God doing with this genealogy? What he's doing is he's saying, look at Israel's history. Look at the history of all humanity. It's nothing but a lot of sinners. But my son Jesus, the Messiah, he's come to save sinners. This is why he's coming. 
This is why he's the incarnate one. He's coming to save sinners. And here's the good news. If Jesus is not ashamed of his ancestry, if he's not ashamed of his ancestors, he won't be ashamed of his descendants. If Jesus is not ashamed of his ancestors, he's not going to be ashamed of his descendants. He's not going to be afraid to list you and me in his family trees. Oh no, I know what that guy did. I don't want to mention him. We'll just kind of gloss over it. No, no, he's not afraid. Why? Because he knows that he's come to save sinners, that his righteousness can cover it all. And so we keep on reading and we enter into the portico of the kings at this moment. All right, and now you're expecting, all right, this is where it gets good. Here's where we hit, hit the kings and, and the good kings. We can highlight the godly kings in Israel's past. But we start going through the kings. And it's just uncomfortable as the previous 14 generations. There's David. It should have been a glorious start, a great start. He's a man after God's own heart. But that's not what we're reminded of. We're reminded of Bathsheba and Uriah and everything with that. And the next, there's Solomon. Solomon was wise, absolutely. But he was also compromised through his marriages to many foreign women and relations with many more. One of his foreign wives gave birth to a son named Rehoboam. Rehoboam was an evil king. He ruled heavy-handedly. And because of the just immense taxation that he put upon the kingdom... Ten tribes of Israel revolted. And the glorious kingdom of Israel was split and torn into two. The ten northern kingdoms, Israel. The two southern kingdoms, Judah. The line would go through the two southern kingdoms, Judah. And so that's the line that we'll continue to trace. But Rehoboam, in addition to simply dividing the kingdom, he also invited in uh, idol worship and sacrifices to false gods in immortal, immoral rituals, all of this into the southern kingdom, Judah. The next king that we get is the king Abijah. Abijah was an evil king. He's also known as Abijam. And that's a reference. It's a, it's a play on words to the Canaanite god. Next came his son, Asaph, also known as Asa. Asa was a good king. Asa, he banned evil rituals that were taking place in Judah. He reformed the idol worship of his fathers. He even removed his grandmother from her royal position because she was making an obscene gesture. But at the same time, Asa compromised. He did not take down the high places where people went to worship false gods. And he made a treaty with Syria instead of trusting the one true God. Asa's son Jehoshaphat was next. He too was a godly king. He worshiped the one true God. Yet just like his father, he refused to take down the high places, the places where people would worship and make sacrifices to false gods, to idols. In addition to that, he also sought to make a peace treaty between the northern kingdom Israel, the southern kingdom Judah. And so what he did is he went to the evil king in the north, King Ahab, he arranged this treaty. Part of what that treaty entailed was for his son, uh, Joram, to marry the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. Her name was Athaliah. Athaliah brought in Baal worship 
and all the rest into the southern kingdom. Josaphat, he was a good king, but far from perfect. Next came his son, Joram. Jehoram. He was evil. He had all of his brothers murdered. Uh, the kingdom suffered politically and spiritually during his reign. When the time came and he died, nobody mourned. Judah cheered when he died. He wasn't even allowed to be buried in the, temp- in, in the tomb of the kings. That's how despised he was. After Joram, the next king mentioned is Uzziah. We actually are skipping four generations here. But the next king mentioned is Uzziah. Uzziah was a godly king. He trusted God. He won many victories. But then he stopped trusting God. And he started trusting himself. He took credit himself for the blessing and what was happening and the victory that was happening for Judah. And he had so much pride that he actually took the position of the priest. He, he went into the area of the temple. He was not supposed to go and make a sacrifice there. And as a consequence, leprosy spread all over his forehead. He was forced to live out the rest of his years in isolation and quarantine. After Uzziah came Jotham. Jotham was a good king. Judah prospered under his reign. He listened to prophets. He was loved by the people. And yet at the same time, Jotham permitted idol worship in Judah. Jotham's son Ahaz was next. He was an evil king. He was an idol-worshiping king. His reign was filled with war. The Edomites attacked. The Philistines attacked. Syria joined forces with the northern kingdom Israel. They attacked. Many, many were killed in Judah under his reign. Uh, Jerusalem seemed in peril. It seemed like it was destined for destruction. The prophet Isaiah urged Ahaz to trust in God. Instead of trusting in God, though, Ahaz made an alliance with the evil empire of Assyria. He actually traveled to Assyria, to Damascus, and he saw one of the statues there to one of the false gods, and he said, oh man, that statue looks really cool. I like the look of that. And he brought it back, and he had it put into the temple in Jerusalem, and he made sacrifices there. He was an evil king. After Ahaz came Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a godly king. He led Judah through crisis. He cleansed the temple. He restored worship to the one true God. He prayed that God would extend his life, and miraculously, God did, gave him another 15 years. But after that, Hezekiah doubted. You would think that that would build trust. Instead, Hezekiah doubts. And in his pride and in his doubting, one of the things that he does at this time is he brings in the Babylonians, and he exposes all of Judah's secrets to the Babylonians. Hezekiah's son Manasseh was next. Manasseh was the worst king that Judah ever had. The Bible says that Manasseh did more evil than all of the pagan nations surrounding her. He sacrificed his sons to the false idol Molech. He practiced witchcraft and divination. He had counselors and and channelers for counselors, or or, um, mediums and channelers for counselors. He he placed uh, false idols in the temple One historian wrote of Manasseh that he had so many people murdered in Judah that you could have, that that their blood could have filled the streets of Jerusalem from one end to another. 
And it was because of the reign of Manasseh, the Bible says, that the Babylonian exile would take place. He was an evil king. After Manasseh came his son Amos, also known as Amon. Amon was a bad king. He worshipped and sacrificed to all the gods of his father. The Bible says that Amon did not humble himself before God. Instead, he increased his guilt. He was a wicked king. Next was Josiah. Josiah would become king at just eight years old. And he was a godly king. He rediscovered the law. He put in many reforms in Judah. He led people to the worship of the one true God. He got rid of idols and things like this. And yet, he still was not perfect. He did not listen to the counsel of of God. And Egypt did not want to fight Judah. But Josiah was looking for a fight. And so he went to battle against Egypt and he was killed. He was a good king, but he wasn't a perfect king. And then you get the last king, Jeconiah, Josiah's grandson. He had a short-lived reign. He didn't last too long before King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came in, laid siege to Jerusalem, and King Jeconiah of Judah surrendered Israel, Judah, to Babylon. And during that surrender, over 10,000 Israelites were taken into Babylonian captivity. You look at this line of kings, and you go through the names, and even the best among them, kings like David and Asa and Hezekiah and Josiah, they were good, but they weren't perfect. They still had their faults. They still made poor judgments at different times. They, they, they didn't always receive counsel. They put up with idol worship. They did things that weren't right. And yet they were the best. And you look at the other ones and it's just really bad and it's really evil and it's really ugly. See, here's the point. Salvation for humanity cannot come simply from inside humanity. Humanity is longing for a better king. A king that can do more than just offer bits of reprieve and a peace for a short period of time. Humanity is longing for a king who can save people from their sin who can enact an eternal kingdom of peace and prosperity forever. And so after you get through this line of kings, do you see what Matthew's building to? Our only hope is Jesus. It's not some other king of Israel. Not some other king of Judah. Our only hope is Jesus. So then we get to the last section. And, you know, we start off, and near the beginning, you see the name Zerubbabel. You might recognize his name. Zerubbabel was the one who, after the Babylonian exile, he, he led uh, in the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. Okay, so during this time, you've got Zerubbabel. He's going to lead the rebuilding of the temple. You've got Nehemiah. He will lead in the rebuilding of the walls. And you've got Ezra. Ezra will be the one who primarily leads in the rebuilding of the people, taking the people back into the land of Judah. But here's Zerubbabel, the governor. He, lead, he rebuilds the temple. You think, okay, we're starting off pretty good. And then you've got nine names. From Zerubbabel to Joseph, in between, you've got nine names. We know nothing about any of them. I mean, we read through them, and it's just hard name after hard name after hard name. You know, it's just like, you know, here's my best guess on how to pronounce it, right? But we don't know anything about them. Even 
Joseph's dad, the adoptive grandfather of Jesus. We, don't, we know nothing about him. We know his name. That's it. Their stories have been forgotten. What they did, we don't know. All we know is they're in the line of Jesus. You know, it's interesting. I was reading that you can go through over in England and, you know, you have the King Charles, and you can, but you can read through the ancestry and the lineage and the genealogy of that whole royal line there in England. And you can learn something about the line going way, way, way back. There's something about all of those people. And here we are, the genealogy of Jesus. And you just go back one generation, and we don't even know a thing. People who've seemingly been forgotten over the course of history. And then you look at uh, the other uh, group of names that we've looked at previously, and there's a whole lot of people who you just assume forget over the course of history. You know, a lot of names. You say, well, I can, do we really need to talk about Tamar? We can just kind of forget about her, the pretend prostitute. Like, we don't really need to include her. Can we just forget that? But, you know, you keep reading her story, and one of the things that's said in Genesis chapter 38 is it praises her righteousness. A pretend prostitute, it praises her righteousness. Rahab, the actual prostitute, the Canaanite, well, okay, we can forget her, Right? Well, we're a little more familiar with her story. The author of Hebrews tells us that by faith, she was a safe harbor for the spies. She she gave them safe passage, and she was included in the line of Israel, even a Canaanite. We look at Ruth, the Moabitess. Okay, she's another one. Maybe we can forget. I mean, a Moabite, let's just kind of leave her out of it. But yet Ruth was fiercely devoted to her mother-in-law, Naomi, And because of that fierce devotion, she proclaimed, Naomi, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. And there's David. And David, and we see his ugliness, and it's just kind of thrust in our faces that what he did to Uriah, the sin with Bathsheba, we're forced to remember it in this genealogy. But if we keep on reading David's story, one of the things that we hear God say is he's a man after my own heart. He said that after the murder, after the adultery, after the cover-up. After all that, you see Bathsheba. Well, we can forget about her. I mean, let's just kind of leave her out of it. And uh, Solomon's born, and there's barely another mention of Bathsheba. She kind of disappears from the pages. We say, you know what, we're all right with that. But yet Solomon, when he's writing in the Proverbs over and over again, he refers to a mother's instruction. He says, a mother's teaching is like a great wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. In Proverbs 31, he begins this way. This is what King Lemuel's mother taught him. Lemuel, that's a a nickname, okay? it's, it's It's a name of dedication. It means unto God. A lot of Old Testament scholars believe that since it's put here with the mother's teaching, a lot of them believe that it might have been Bathsheba who even gave him that name or called him that frequently. And then you read Proverbs 31, and what do you see? You see godly wisdom from Bathsheba. You even go down to the kings, and you see Manasseh, the worst king, the most evil king, the most corrupt king, violent king, murderous king, In Judah's history, the one whose actions 
paved the way for the Babylonian exile. And yet you read 2 Chronicles 33, and it tells us that Manasseh actually repented at the end of his life. And he turned, and he followed the one true God, and he tore down altars, and he led people back to proper temple worship of Yahweh. When, when you read this genealogy, as you begin, you almost think that it's going to be building up to the Messiah. It's going to be building up to Jesus. And that's almost what you're expecting. But as you get through these names, and it's names of people whose stories, some of whom we'd like to forget, others of whom have been forgotten. And as you look at it and you stare into it, you realize... The Messiah, the Savior, he can't just be built up to because it's a line of sinners. It's an ugly line. It's an uncomfortable line. No, no, the Messiah would not just be built up to. You understand the Messiah would enter into humanity. And so when you get to the last line, it doesn't say Jacob, the father of Joseph, Joseph, the father of Jesus. No, Jacob, the father of Joseph, Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, the one who is called the Christ. This is not a building up to. This is the Messiah entering in. You understand this genealogy, the genealogy of Jesus, it foreshadows the fact that Jesus entered into humanity for all people, that he came to seek and save sinners. Jesus came for all people. And so when we stop and we just look at this wall of names that Matthew has prepared for us, if you stare into it long enough, you begin to see your own reflection. Maybe it's in the faithful but still imperfect people like Abraham or David. Maybe it's in the black sheep like Manasseh. Maybe it's those with uh, objectionable past or not the right kind of identities like the Gentile women, Rahab, Ruth. Maybe it's the forgotten ones like Eliakim or Azor. Whatever the fact, you you look in there long enough and you begin to see yourself. You say, I can relate to that person. I can relate to that person. I can relate to that person. And after a while, what you begin to realize is, you know what? It doesn't matter my imperfection. It doesn't matter my scandalous past. It doesn't matter all those black uh, sheep that I've got in my closet that I just like buried away so deep that no one ever has to dig it up. That Jesus came for sinners. He came to save sinners. He can dig all that ugly sin up and he can take it and he did on the cross And he rose again, defeating that sin so that he can give you his righteousness. The genealogy of Jesus hints at that. It tells us Jesus came for all people to save us from our sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, as we read the genealogy of your son Jesus, it's a relatable genealogy. We can see our own reflection in the names listed on the wall. And God, because of that, it's an encouraging genealogy because it reminds us that 
you're not ashamed of your ancestors, so you're not going to be ashamed of us, your descendants. And the reason why you don't have to be ashamed of us is because Jesus took our sin and he defeated it. And in his place, he gave us his righteousness. And so God, now you use us to be messengers who get to proclaim this good news of great joy that Jesus did in fact come for all people. May we be faithful messengers. We need your help to do that. So we ask this by the grace of your son, Jesus Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.